Afternoon all, good to see you here at the EU public meeting. I put those boards up only so you don't get completely enamoured by your own reflection, which happens so easily to those of us who are truly beautiful. Um, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to listen to what you have to say to us through your word. Father, by your spirit and as you've promised, please open our minds so that we might truly perceive who you are and that in that knowledge you might be recreating us into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity to reflect together on reality as you've revealed it to us. We pray, Father, that you give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. For Jesus' sake and your glory, Lord. Amen. I used to think that I was a very patient person until I had children. Now you, I know most of you don't have children, you don't yet have that wonderful blessing from God, but I truly believed, and it just goes to show my own arrogance, I really believed that I was more patient than most. I really thought that actually other people struggled with anger much more than I ever did, until I had children. And so yes, I'd like to say, oh, every now and then I have an anger management problem. But the truth is, most days, at some point in the day, and partly maybe it's because the Lord's blessed us with five children, maybe I'm sort of pushing the bounds of what's humanly possible, but I don't actually believe that. But there's at some point in the day I, just, I will just feel the frustration. I will feel the anger. And I don't think that I'm a bad parent. I think I've got a long way to go and grow as a parent. But anger is just so easily right there. Now, I hope that if you looked at it, having just told you, shared you with that particular aspect of my life, that yes, sometimes I get angry with my children, I hope you don't write me off as a person. Oh my goodness. I mean, if your parent, if your parent or parents have never been angry with you, that they've just been a perfect picture of patience and self-control and abounding love and gentleness, then please pray for me. <laughs> pray for me. Because your parents are already perfect. That's fantastic. But this is a pretty common problem, anger management. And it's not unsurprising when people have read the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, that often they've looked at it and and gone, does God have an anger management problem? Let me share with you just a few sort of vignettes to sort of get a picture of that. We've been looking at the book of Exodus here in the EU public meetings on and off during the year. And even last week we saw after... The Israelites had made a golden calf, so instead of worshipping the one true God, Yahweh, they decided to worship this calf. What had happened? Well, what had happened was the Levites, one particular, one of the 12 tribes, had all taken swords at the Lord's command and gone through killing other people from the nation of Israel. 3,000 died at the Lord's command. And if that wasn't enough, a little bit later after Moses' intercession, we see God says, I will punish those who are guilty and he sends a plague on his own people for what they've done. Or jump back, for, jump back a little bit to earlier in, the, in this book of Exodus, we know what had happened at the Red Sea. All of the Egyptian army had been killed, every single one of them drowned through a miracle that the Lord wrought. Or go back a bit earlier... What was the very last plague through which God brought his people out? It was the death of the firstborn in every family in Egypt. 
keep going, go back further. What about the flood? God wiped out all of humanity. Jump forward to what the New Testament teaches us about the destiny of all people who will not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. What is it? Hell. Does God have an anger management problem? Can he not just sort of overlook this sort of stuff? Why does he need to be so vengeful? In fact, I'll read you what some, some people have said from having read the scriptures. This is what one person said. It always amazes me how many times this God orders the killing of innocent people, even after the Ten Commandments had said, Thou shalt not kill. Just about every other page in the Old Testament has God killing somebody. Or another person. Do you want to spend eternity worshipping a God that displays psychopathic tendencies and who seems okay about sending millions of people into a fiery hell for exercising their free will? Does God have an anger management problem? Some of us may resonate with that question actually not so much from reading the scriptures but actually just from personal experience. I don't know what your life has been like but I know that life often sucks. Maybe you've actually had a hard time in life and maybe you feel a fair bit of anger towards God and say, why does God allow these things to happen? Is God angry with this world that he allows these things to happen? So you might be actually asking the question out of more personal experience than reflection on the scriptures. Either way, it's a question a lot of people ask. What's wrong with this God? That he acts and behaves and commands things like this. If you haven't felt the... the, the um, the force of that question, if you haven't actually felt just the, the great tragedy of so many people being condemned to hell, then I wonder whether you've really stopped to think about what the Christian scriptures actually teach. Have you actually stopped to reflect on just the enormity of this reality in which we're involved? Does God have an anger management problem? There's a partial truth actually, I think, in the case, the case that I've just outlined for God's anger management problem. The partial truth, I think, is this. God does get truly angry, without doubt, as the scriptures testify. God does get truly angry. And we can tell he's angry because when it comes to God, you can tell what God's like because of what he does. That's a right and proper way to understand the character of God by what he does. will give you a true insight into his nature and you can say, yes, he is angry. However, if you just looked at my life and said, Rowan, this morning you got grumpy with one of your kids because they just were being recalcitrant and wouldn't actually do the simple thing you actually asked, like, come on, lie down so I can change that pooey nappy that's destroying us all. <laughs> no, I, I don't want to justify myself, but, and, but you know, if you just looked at me and said, look, why are you getting so angry? He's only a little child. And then you wrote off my whole character based on that one incident. That wouldn't be right, would it? You need to look at the totality of my life to try to get some sense of the work of God, hopefully in my life, that gradually, slowly, ever so slowly, I'm gradually becoming more like the Lord Jesus. The same is true of God. You can tell true things about God's character by looking at what he does in the world, but you've got to look at the totality of it. You've got to look at the totality. That's why it's only a partial truth. Yes, God is angry, but he's, he's not only angry. There's many more things that we need to think about in terms of God's character. And to do that, we need to look at the totality of his action. 
So what we're going to do today is try to understand a little bit about God's character by looking a bit more broadly at what is God actually doing here in the book of Exodus, particularly with reference to Exodus chapters 33 and 34, which have come smack bang after the golden calf incident in chapter 32. That's what we're seeking to do today. Okay, so looking then at the character of God, first sort of subheading there is good gone bad. Just to bring you back up to date, just so you're, you're with us in the story if you've sort of missed the last couple of weeks, what's happened? Uh, Exodus chapters 1 through 18, in sort of one sentence, what did God do? He's rescued a people so that they might worship him alone. That's what God's done, Exodus chapters 1 to 18. He's rescued a people so that they might worship him alone. Then Exodus 19 through to chapter 24, what does he do with his people who he's rescued? He establishes his covenant with them. Really important for understanding what we're talking about today, Exodus 19 to 24 was about God establishing his covenant, his agreement with his people. And what was the nature of that covenant? He said, you will be my treasured possession, I will be with you, I reveal myself to you and you need to listen to what I have to say. You need to take it in and live it out. That's best for you and that's how you'll be my people. And we'll live in this relationship of mutual love. That was Exodus 19 to 24. Exodus 25 to 31, while Moses was up the mountain, was was a little bit of a picture of just how good this covenant would be. What were the great blessings that would come from this covenant that he's established? Namely, God says, I want you to set up a tent for me in the middle of your people. In the middle of this, my people, set up a tent and here's all the instructions and the architectural plans. Make it according to these plans and I'm going to come and live among you. Whoa, that's going to be fantastic. Not only has God rescued them out of slavery and idolatry, not only has he now established his covenant with them, he's going to live in their very midst. Yes, this is going to be good. But then as we saw last week, Exodus 32, what happens? They basically say, forget that. Let's do our own thing. I wonder if uh, you've ever had this experience, not that I'm going to share something about my own life, but I don't know, you might think it is. Um, You're on a first date. You're on a first date with somebody and because the person's trying to impress you or you're trying to impress them, you take them out to a pretty nice place to eat. You know, you decide to not go to Macca's, you decide not, let's go KFC, let's go top shelf here, right? (laughs) And you're sitting down across the table and you've picked a table with just two seats, you know, so it's sort of intimate... Um, and you're sitting down there and you're eating of, of the, the wonderful food that's provided for you and you're eating and just, you know how one of those things happens sometimes? You, you go to s- swallow but the air goes the wrong way and you sort of cough and you've got a mouthful of food <laughs> and gee, you should have picked the big bench seats with the wide table. But you pick the intimate one and it's just... <laughs> all, oh my goodness. And this person who you've sort of taken out on this date is sort of trying to sort of smile and wipe half-regurgitated chicken from there. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a bad sort of start, isn't it? It starts good, goes bad. All those stories of, you know, someone who sort of makes the big league in their sporting team, they sort of come onto the field as a substitute, the ball comes to their feet, they grab the ball, they start kicking, score in the wrong goal. (laughs) Good start, crappy ending. Is that what's going on here in Exodus? God's people starting so well because at the end of the covenant section, chapter 24, Moses comes down the mountain 
and says, so this is what God wants us to do and all the people say three times, yes, we will do it. It's starting so well. And then 40 days later, while Moses is back up the mountain, they're suddenly worshipping some earrings that they've sort of refashioned into a golden cow. Is it just good gone bad? It's much worse. Much, much worse. I was trying to think, how could you come up with an analogy of what the Israelites were doing at this point? I think it's something like you going up to your parent when your parent said, you know, we love you and uh, just because we love you, we want to try and make your life easier and we've decided to do this, this and this for you. We're going to give you this, this car because that will make your life easier and we've, we've organised this stuff for you. We're going to pay off your hex debt and we're going to do all this stuff and you stand there and go, that's great. <laughs> and you spit smack in their face. It's sort of got that sort of just, this is just wrong. Like you just, why do you spit in the face of your parents? Why would you try to slap them down? Why would you sort of backstab your best friend, the person who's sacrificing everything for you? Why would you, that's what they're doing. This is not just, oh, that was a bit stupid. This is catastrophic. This is just saying to God, God, and I'll moderate my language, get stuffed, God. Take a hike. You might have rescued us, but we care nothing for you. That's, that's, that's what's going on here, right? Now, last week we saw what happened, that God said in his justice, he said, this, this people are going to be destroyed because of what they've done. And Moses intercedes and God relents. He changes his mind he, and he allows them to, to continue to live even though they're not repentant initially. So that brings us now to chapter 33. And I just want to say, I needed to go through that story so that you can you know, feel a bit of the tension of this particular chapter of the Bible, which is, my goodness, what's going to happen now? Because when Moses came down the mountain, he had the Ten Commandments, the sort of the covenant document and he smashed it. Why? Because that covenant that God had established with that people is over. It's not just uh, a bit of a misstep. It's, it's gone. The covenant's dead. So now what happens? What happens to the people? What's God going to do? I want you to feel a little bit of the problem. The problem at this particular point in the story. Okay, so what happens now? Now if you've got a your Bible there, it'd be great to open up to Exodus chapter 33, 34. We're not going to read through all of this stuff, we're going to read out a few little bits that are helpful to us. And you can see here now I've got a heading, The Problem. And this really is chapter 33, verses 1 to 11. Chapter 33, 1 to 11. The Problem. What is the problem? Well, the problem is there... In, uh, let's look at chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go, leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. However, jump down to verse 3, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Back down in uh, verse 5, he actually says, if for a single moment I should go among you, I will consume you. 
because you are stiff-necked. Remember last week, stiff-necked, stubborn, refusing to heed or listen to what God has to say, refusing to turn around. And what God's saying here to you, okay, yep, go up to the land, but I'm not going to go with you. Now, at that point, they've lost all the blessings of the covenant that was established in chapters 19 to 24, right? God says, I'm going to be your God, you'll be my people. What's more, make this tabernacle, this tent, and I'm going to live in your midst. All of that's gone because that covenant's gone, baby. And so now he just says, go up. I'll send my angel in front of you. You'll get there, but I'm not going. Because if I came amongst you, you are so stubborn, I would have to destroy you. That's a problem, right? It's a problem. So that's the situation for the Israelites. For Moses, the leader of God's people, it's a little bit different. If you read on for the next sort of section of chapter 33, verses 7 to 11, you'll see there that the writer describes how for Moses it was a different situation. For the Israelites, God couldn't come among them or they'd just have to be destroyed because of their stubborn, stiff necks. But for Moses, Moses could go to this particular tent outside the camp a tent that was known as the tent of meeting and there the Lord would meet with him. And it says there in verse 11, have a look in your Bible there, what does it say? Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So Moses has face to face contact with God, the Lord. The Israelites can't even come close. God can't even be in their midst. It's a bit of a a difference here, right, between the two. So this is all sort of part of the problem. God can't go with the Israelites, but yet with Moses he can meet face to face. So, what happens? What happens? The heading there, the intercession. This is chapter 33, verse 12, through to the end of the chapter. Moses intercedes for the people. Moses comes before the Lord and he asks two things of God. Two things. First of all, he seeks that Yahweh, the Lord, might go with them. That's the first thing he wants. He wants Yahweh to go with them, to stay with them. Moses is seeking at this point to recapture some of the promises and blessings that came with that covenant that ended. He wants Yahweh to go with them. Second thing he seeks, he seeks there that Yahweh would reveal himself to Moses. Have a look in chapter 33 verse 12. You'll see both of these things functioning here. Moses says to the Lord, verse 12, See, you've said to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you have also found favour in my sight. Now if I found favour in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favour in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Moses goes, understands the Lord is not going to reveal himself now to the Israelites in person. In that first covenant, all the people stood there at the bottom of the mountain and they heard God speak. It was a sort of a direct face-to-face meeting. You heard him with your own ears. That's not going to be the case anymore. God says, you're a stubborn, stiff-necked people, I can't come among you. So Moses says, well, show me your glory. Show me your ways because I've got to lead this people. So show it to me. If I found favour in your sight, show it to me so then they might know. That's what Moses asked for. That's the intercession. 
and Yahweh answers. And as a heading there on the board, the goodness and the glory of God. Have a look there in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you've asked, for you've found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses says, Show me your glory, I pray. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, Moses, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I don't know if you've ever sung that hymn, uh, old hymn, but uh, sometimes it gets new life with a new tune, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Um, Often we sort of, the rest of the hymn makes perfect sense, but what was that first line about? Rock of ages, cleft for me? Uh, that's where it's from, if you're ever wondering. That God actually says, Moses, I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock. Like A, a cleft is like a, a gap in the rock. And uh, the, that, that cleft will protect you. That gap in the rock will protect you as I pass by. Because you can't see my face. Even though, yes, you found favour in my sight. You can't see my face or you will die. But I will allow you to see my back. Now, at that point, we're introducing a whole lot of what's called anthropomorphism. So, a whole whole lot of language about humanity that sort of God's using to talk about himself. He doesn't literally have a back or a face or a hand, but he's using that sort of language to communicate to Moses what's going to happen. Okay? So, if you've ever wondered about that hymn, there you go. There's a little answer for you. That's a bit of an aside. So... What does God reveal to Moses here? Remember Moses said, show me your ways and then a bit later on we just read there, he says, show me your glory and God replies, the Lord replies, I will show you my goodness. God's glory is his goodness. That's a really key word for understanding who the one true God is. He is Good. Now, good plays out in lots of ways as we're about to see as we go on into chapter 34. The Lord is going to, when he passes by Moses, he'll say more about his character. And that, that key word, goodness, will be filled out, fleshed out with lots of, sort of other characteristics. But it all comes under that heading of that God is good. So that's what he's going to reveal. Okay, let's have a look then at in more depth, the goodness and the glory of God, chapter 34. Let me read on in chapter 34, start at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain. Do not let the flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now what's about to happen here is truly astounding. The rest of the scriptures later on will just say this this was an astounding moment. What the Lord God did here for this one guy Moses. 
Verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name the Lord, Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses does what, what the only possible response. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He said, If now I have found favour in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us, although this is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Let's just reflect for a moment on how the Lord God, the one true God who really is, reveals himself. How does he flesh out what it means for him to be good? You see there some of the key words. A God merciful. right? Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. Relenting. When people deserve their sort of just deserts, actually relent. They don't actually get that. That's mercy. Merciful and gracious. Gracious is um, giving to someone explicitly what they don't deserve. Showing kindness when actually maybe they deserve judgment. Showing them what they don't deserve. He's merciful and gracious. And in contrast to having an anger management problem, God is slow to anger. Now, these are characteristics that he's starting to give here, the Lord gives here, he proclaims, you can actually see lived out in the way God treats people. Remember what's happened at this particular point in the book. God's people have spat in his face just the chapter before. Would you say, given what they've just done, that God is merciful? Well, yes. Is he being gracious to them? Yes, he said, go up to the land I promised your forefathers, even though you spit in my face, I will still go take you to the land of milk and honey. Is he slow to anger? Well, as we saw last week, if you trace through the rest of the Israelite history, they are a, it's a history of a people immersed in idolatry. Unfortunately, the golden calf was not the last time. It was only the beginning of the time of God's people who just persisted in worshipping things that are not the real God. Is he slow to anger? Yes, he is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He then says he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These are some pretty key words here, that God abounds in steadfast love. Love that does not fluctuate. Love that does not waver. Love that just remains steadfast no matter what is coming back the other way. That's a pretty good sort of love to be receiving, I reckon. Steadfast love. No matter how you wander from the way, God is steadfast in his love, in his affections towards those to whom he's chosen. And he's faithful. He's faithful here, I take it, to his promises. Because God's people throughout the rest of the Old Testament history are going to keep wandering from God's way and yet God is going to remain faithful to his covenant promises. And in order to do that, he's going to keep forgiving people their sin. So you can see then the next uh, verse, verse 7, fleshes out those last two phrases, steadfast love and faithfulness. 
He keeps steadfast love for the thousandth generation and he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin in order to be faithful to his covenant. It's amazing, I think, that God keeps steadfast love for the thousandth generation. He said that earlier in the scriptures already in his revelation of himself to his people. How long is a thousand generations? I don't know, what's a generation? 20, maybe? Let's just say that, 20. So a thousand generations is 20,000 years. That's a long time, isn't it? He's faithful to the descendants of those who love him for a thousand generations. That's just how steadfast God is in his love. Such a sad thing that's so different to the way you and I often try to love in our own way. God is steadfast in his love. Yet you'll see here, he's by no means clearing the guilty. I think this is where you can start to see into this picture of the character of God, how come God does get angry against wickedness and sin. It's because he doesn't clear the guilty. I think sometimes we think, what would, what would I like God to be like? Okay, well, what would I like God to be like? I think I'd like God to be like, aside from giving me everything that my heart's desire, I'd like God to, to, to overlook my wrongdoing. I'd like him just for him just to go, ah, oh, it's all right, don't worry about it. I'm not sure that I want him to do it for everybody else's wrongdoing. Like uh, for most of you, yeah, I'm happy for him to overlook your wrongdoing too, except for when you wrong me. If you wrong me, I'm not so keen that he overlooked your wrongdoing. Oh, and then there's the people, of course, we wouldn't want him to over, would want him to overlook, you know, Stalin's wrongdoing or Hitler's wrongdoing or Pol Pot's wrongdoing or any of the other, you know, typical characters of human atrocity history. So we sort of don't want him to overlook everybody's wrongdoing but we'd like him to overlook at least mine. I think basically because we just want God to be nice to me, to fit in with what I would like. That's what we would like God to be like. But when we actually stop and think about it, actually that's not going to make sense, is it? That sort of God, can't, you can't please all the people in that particular way any of the time. We actually do want a God who cares about right and wrong. We want to see justice done. We want a God who's powerful enough and who cares enough to actually see justice done. And if you actually don't want to see justice done, it's probably because you've actually just been so blessed by God that you haven't actually suffered very much. Or you're so blinkered by our Western society and so self-focused that you just don't see the suffering in the world around you. We want a God who's going to see justice done. And the good news here in his character is that he, he doesn't just clear the guilty, but justice is done. So he reveals himself here in these words, but he reveals himself here in his actions. All these things that he's describing here are lived out in the experience of God's own people. They experience him as merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and they experience him as seeing justice done. But it's a merciful justice. It's justice always characterised by mercy and grace such that they do not receive everything that they deserve. How then does it end? Well, notice there Moses' request in verse 9 was, again, Lord, go with us. And what you then get in verses 10 
to the end of uh, to about verse 27 is that God initiates a new covenant. Remember the old covenant of chapters 19 and 21 is over. That's dead in the water. That's, it's not revived here. That's just over. God introduces a whole new covenant. The thing is, a lot of the the basis of the covenant and the stipulations of the covenant are the same as the old one, but it is a genuinely new moment, a genuinely new situation. He make, God makes this new covenant and that's how he shows his steadfast love and faithfulness to the people. Even though they're spat in his face, he's now going to establish a new covenant with them. And that's why Moses takes back up the, ten, the uh, two tablets and he again gets the Ten Commandments. It's got the same stipulations, the same basis, but it's different. Now we're going to come, we need to think about that. Why is it different? How is it different? Right at the end of chapter 34 is this odd little bit. And I said before, it's often the odd little bits when you're reading the Bible that actually help you actually understand it properly once you actually wrap your mind around it. This is an odd little bit. It tells, tells about the fact that when Moses comes down from, from Mount Sinai, it's like he's been super moisturising, right? <laughs> he's been moisturising so much that his face is radiant the NIV puts it, or um, some of the other, it just shines. His face is so radiant. And he doesn't even, he's not even aware of it. But you'll read there in verse 29, Moses came down from the Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets in his hand, he did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses spoke with them. And afterwards all Israel came near and he gave them the commandments of all the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And then it goes on to say that whenever Moses would go out to the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord, as he goes into the tent, he'd take off the veil, he'd go in, he'd speak with the Lord and when he'd come out, he would communicate what the Lord had to say to all Israel with his face unveiled and they'd see his shining face and then when he finished speaking what the Lord had to say, he put the veil back on. And then just hang around in the camp doing what Moses did, leading God's people, until he goes back in to meet the Lord again when he take it off and do it. Do you understand? His face was unveiled when? When he's acting as the mediator. When he's acting as God's spokesperson. Why did he veil his face the rest of the time? We're not told in Exodus. If you want to find out why his, his face was veiled, you've got to actually go to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's two places in the New Testament that particularly focus on these events that we've been looking at in Exodus 33, 34. The two places are John chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 13 basically says that Moses veiled his face so that the Israelites could not see the end of the glory. Now often if you're reading the NIV, that's been translated so that they couldn't see the fading glory, as though Moses' face would get less shiny over time and he didn't want them to see it so he would... I don't think that's what it's saying at all. It was so they couldn't see the end as in the goal of the glory. He veiled his face as a sign to them to saying, you guys, because if you're stiff necks, can't see the Lord like I can. It's not because I'm great, but it's just because you're stubborn. You have hard hearts. 
And so you can't see my face. It's, the, the veil is assigned to you that you can't experience what I can experience but only because of your hard hearts. I think that's why he veiled his face. Now, the last heading there in the last uh, two minutes, greater grace. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time to talk here about it, but I just want to point to you that two, these two passages in the New Testament that reflect on the truths we've been seeing here because, friends, it's astounding. It tells us even greater grace is available for us in what's called the New Covenant. That covenant that God has now established with Moses that we've been reading about today, that covenant is the one that which all Israel lived, lived under for the rest of their days. It was sort of refined through David and, and those sort of things, but, but actually that was the dominant covenant under which Israel lived. But the history of Israel shows that they were stubborn repeatedly and so they could not experience the great blessings that were a, a, a potential under that covenant, hence the veil that communicates that to them. When you go to John chapter 1, particularly verses 14 to 18, what you'll see there is John the Apostle saying, we have seen God. That is, he's saying, we, talking about the Apostles, have seen God like Moses did in the person of Jesus Christ. And it actually reflects on the way God has revealed himself in chapter 33 and he says, we've seen Jesus who has the glory, the glory of God's one-of-a-kind son, the glory that's full of grace and truth, which is basically the same as abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the same image, the same words, the same descriptions apply to this man, Jesus Christ, who was the word God become flesh. God has revealed himself now in this new covenant in the man, Jesus Christ. And then if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says this, and this is even weirder. How cool do you think it would have been to have been Moses? To have seen the back of God's glory, to have his goodness pass in front of you. How good would it have been to go into the tent and have that shining face just from the sheer experience of being in God's presence? And you know what 2 Corinthians 3 says? It says that in Christ, by turning to Christ in faith and by virtue of having the Spirit in you, you have a better experience than Moses. Because it says you have an unveiled face and that we all, he says, are reflecting his glory, the Lord's glory. We see his reflection as though in a mirror and we are reflecting his glory in greater and greater and greater measure. I think one of the things that often happens when we read the Old Testament is we think, wow, it would have been so cool because God was just so visceral. He was just so present with his people in such a physical sort of way. And, and yet the New Testament says, friends, if you're in Christ, if you've turned to Christ, you have a better experience of God than they did. You have a better experience of God than Moses. Why? Because you can see Jesus and you have the Spirit in you that spirit that has so worked in your heart that you want to obey God. And that was something that the Israelite people, that stubborn, stiff-necked people did not have. You have that same spirit that was in Moses, resident in you. So let me lead us in prayer, a prayer of thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
that you have been so kind to us in the Lord Jesus Christ that you have not only adopted us as your people but you've put your own spirit in our hearts and minds so that we might behold your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the action of your spirit and word in our life so that we might be obedient to you, live lives of great faith and love and hope and bring glory to your name. Amen.